Good morning again and welcome. This morning we are continuing with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. Returning to have a second look at chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, which we first looked at a few weeks ago, focusing at that time on verse 18. In that study we saw several things. Uh, Firstly, we took a brief look at the the larger section in which these verses, these few verses are found, and which runs from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. And in looking at that, we saw the relationship between that whole section and the verse, the the single verse immediately preceding it, Romans 1, 17, and in particular Paul's words there about the righteousness of God. And as we saw in our study, with that phrase, Paul is referring to the right standing that God, uh, with God that is graciously conferred upon unworthy sinners. And in looking at that, we saw how verse 17 was sort of a prelude to a fuller development of this theme of the righteousness of God that will be expanded upon in chapter 4. And yet, even though Romans 1.17 is only a prelude, it is an important one. It's sort of like someone sitting you down to talk to you and saying something like this. Uh, Look, I'm going to tell you a story, and just so you know, it's going to be a hard story for you to hear. It's not a pretty story, it's not a very encouraging story, it's not a very encouraging picture that I'm about to paint for you, but... Before I start to tell you that, let me just say this. There is a happy ending to this. There's a really good outcome on the other side of all this. I'm not going to say much more than that right now, but later on after I get through all the hard stuff, I'll have more to say and you'll see what I mean. But for now, just remember what I told you. This story has a good ending. That's something like what's going on in Paul's letter right here. Paul's about to deliver a lot of bad news for everybody on the planet. That's 118 to 320. But before he does that, he gives them some good news, just a hint, but enough to make the bad news tolerable. That's the hope and promise and gift of the righteousness of God found in verse 1, verse 17 of chapter 1. That's one thing that we looked at previously. Then after looking at that, we spent some time looking at the sobering reality of the wrath of God that is actual, not merely metaphorical, not uh, poetic. It is real wrath. It is genuine. It is a wrath that is right and just and justifiable and an entirely appropriate posture for a holy God to take. And finally, we looked at some pastoral reasons why it's important and even helpful for us to take a little time to carefully work through this section of Paul's letter, reasons that I'm not going to rehearse right now. But at any rate, that's as far as we got in our first look at verses 18 to 20. This morning, as I've already indicated, I want us to take a second look. And in doing so, I want us to focus on several things. Firstly, I want to think a little further about the wrath of God and specifically how it is currently being revealed Secondly, I want to think about the specific reason for God's wrath being revealed. To be sure, we looked at the reasons for God's wrath against human sin in a more general way previously, but this morning I want to look at what specifically these verses are telling us about 
the reason for God's wrath. Especially this matter of suppressing the truth about God. I want to look at that. What that truth is, what that, the suppression of it means. And thirdly, I want us to think about the universal nature of this truth suppression. And then the worldwide universal culpability that flows from it. And finally, the lifelong struggle that it continues to be, even and especially for those that have accepted the Lord Jesus. That's where we're going. Before we look any further into that, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, please help us now to see and understand the things that you have for us in these verses. Both the things that you have for us individually and then equally as a body of believers. Help us through all of this to know you better and ourselves better. And thus help us to see more clearly our great need and utter dependence upon you. Because at the end of the day, that is the one thing we truly need. And it is you. So show us that now. Reconfirm that now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 1, 18-20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. As we've already seen in our previous look at the subject of the wrath of God, we focused in the main upon the fact of God's wrath and how contrary to the view held in some circles, the idea of a wrathful God is not contrary to the truth that God is love, but in fact flows naturally out of the fact that God is love. Indeed, it could almost be said that God's love requires His wrath as the only reasonable response of a truly loving God to a human rebellion that only results in the destruction of the objects of His love. Well, as we continue to look at this idea of the wrath of God this morning, we see how in verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed or manifested, your translation may say. And just as we saw when we talked about the righteousness of God a few weeks ago, when Paul talks here about God's wrath being revealed, he's not just informing us, he's not just giving us information that, uh, that God is upset or has been upset about human sin and wickedness. He's saying that God's wrath is being revealed presently, right now. He's saying that it's being poured out on the world all around us, even within us, at this very moment. The entire world right now is under and is experiencing the wrath of God. It's not the fullness of that wrath, but it's a foretaste, and it's real, and it's not pretty. You might ask, how so? How is the wrath of God 
been made evident? How is it being made evident? How is the wrath of God being revealed today, right now? There are a number of things that could be said in response to that. Um, Let me just give you a couple. Firstly, the wrath of God has been revealed at the cross of Christ. To be sure, the cross of Christ clearly reveals the righteousness of God. It was the place, the instrumental means by which God makes undeserving sinners right with himself. But none of that changes the fact that at one and the same moment, the cross is also the thing that most clearly shows the wrath of God against unrighteousness. I've used this illustration before, but imagine that you're stuck on the interstate. And, uh, in other words, imagine that you live in Baton Rouge. So you're stuck on the interstate, and you've been there for a little while, this kind of endless line of cars, it's just not moving. Nobody's moving. You have no idea what's happened somewhere way up in front of you. You just know that nobody's moving. And as you sit there and contemplate how wonderful life is, you hear what at first is the faint sound of an ambulance approaching. And then you uh, hear it become very loud as the ambulance comes swooshing past, because that's what ambulances do, they swoosh. And it comes swooshing past. And then as you sit, another ambulance comes screaming by. And then another ambulance comes screaming by. And you start to count. And eventually, 50 ambulances come screaming by your car. Now, what would you be thinking at that point? I mean, I don't know about you, but here's what I would be thinking. I'd be thinking, I have no idea what has happened up there, but this much I know. I don't know what the problem is, but if the solution to the problem is 50 ambulances, it's a huge problem. You don't have to know or even fully understand the extent of what has happened. You can see by the response that it has to be awful. Similar fashion, if you come across a scene where the Son of God, the Son of God, mind you, is hanging, bloody, beaten, dying on a cross, if you come across a scene where that is the answer, that is the solution, where that is God's response to something, that you have to think, whatever the problem is, whatever is going on here, it must be huge if that is the answer. You have to think that anything that requires the death of God's Son as a solution must be an impossibly enormous problem. A problem on a scale that's never been seen before. And then going a step further, you have to think that God must be terribly, terribly upset over this. And you see, that is what the cross tells us, among other things. It reveals the tragedy of human rebellion against God and with it, the wrath of God and how terribly, awfully upset he is over human sin and depravity. So again, that's one way that the wrath of God has been revealed at the cross of Christ. Another way that the wrath of God has been made manifest and continues to be made manifest is by the universal and inescapable reality of death. The terrible truth is that everyone dies. 
Sometimes in tragic, horrible ways, as we've been so painfully reminded of this past week or so. Sometimes in slow, almost quiet ways, as we get reminded of all the time. And then, you know, every kind of death that falls between those. And this universal reality of human death, as the Bible clearly teaches, is not just something that is here as part of the natural order of things. Right? There is nothing natural at all about death. It isn't natural. It isn't right. It doesn't belong here. It's not part of the circle of life, apologies to Disney. It's something that has come into the world as an outworking of the wrath of God against human sin and rebellion. Listen to some of Paul's words from Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. As one commentator has noted, if you look carefully what Paul's saying here, he is making a clear connection between the fall of humankind into sin and the coming of death, which he then refers to as a form of judgment and as a condemnation. In other words, death was and it remains a visible, tragic, painful demonstration and outworking of the wrath of God. Yet another way that we've seen and continue to discover the wrath of God being revealed in the world is seen in the reality that there seems to be a built-in, inherent element of futility and frustration that characterizes our lives here and permeates the very fabric of creation. Things break down. All kinds of things. All the time. Our bodies break down. They wear out. Our minds break down. As human beings, we struggle with one another all the time. In our work, in our labors, we experience hardship as the very things that we put our hands to at times seem to resist our efforts at whipping them into some shape or order. Things that seem to offer fulfillment and satisfaction inevitably fall short and leave us wondering what went wrong. In short, we see the outworking of the curse that came into the world and which was pronounced upon humanity all the way back in Genesis 3. And as a consequence of human sin and rebellion, do you remember the sobering words that God delivered back then? And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Do you hear the futility there? Listen to Paul's echo of that in Romans 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. My futility is all around us. It's even within us. I mean, listen to that phrase, right? We groan inwardly. Who hasn't known that? Who doesn't know that? We see this. We know this. And it's not just Christians that see this. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows this. I remember uh, very well when, this is going to date me, but when Kansas released their album, Point of No Return, 1977, one of the main tracks, Dust in the Wind, the lyrics of which go like this. I close my eyes only for a moment, and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes with curiosity. Dust in the wind, all they are is dust in the wind. Same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Dust in the wind, all we are is dust in the wind. Now, don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away, and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind, all we are is dust in the wind. Everything is dust in the wind. I remember well when that song came out. I was a sophomore in high school. It was a beautiful song. It was a depressing song. But it was an honest song. It was written by a man who knew and felt, not because he was a Christian, but because he felt it at the very core of his being. He saw and he knew the reality of a creation gone wrong, of a world that was broken, people that are broken, And all of this too, says Paul, is a revelation. It's a manifestation of the wrath of God that we see all around us and even feel it within us. The world around us is not what it's supposed to be. And neither are we ourselves yet what we are supposed to be. And so it is that the wrath of God is being revealed right now. We don't need to wonder about this ever again. It's everywhere. We see it in the cross. We see it in the reality of death. We see it in and through the ongoing reality of futility and brokenness that's built into the very fabric of creation, which includes ourselves, our bodies, as part of that creation. So the evidence of the wrath of God that is currently being revealed is all around us, even within us. But why? You know, what, what is it that has brought about the wrath of God? What has been the trigger for this? In terms of this text, listen to it again. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What has God shown? For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In terms of the passage before us this morning, Paul seems to focus in upon at least one particular thing that seems to have evoked the wrath of God, namely when people to whom he has clearly revealed himself and who therefore have no excuse for doing so, nevertheless, deliberately suppress the truth, that truth, and act either as if they don't know God is there, or worse, admit that he is, or might be, but they don't care. But that reality, the deliberate, willful suppression of the truth of God, is, according to Paul, a huge part what has evoked the deep and abiding anger of God? One writer named Lightfoot has this to say about these verses. It's very insightful. He says, The essence of sin is godlessness. That is, getting rid of God. Seeking to be godless, to be God-free. That is at the core of it. The attempt to get rid of God. The determination to live as though one had succeeded in doing so. It's not just that they do wrong, though they know better. It is that they have made an a priori decision to live for themselves rather than for God and others and therefore deliberately stifle any truth which challenges their self-centeredness. I think Lightfoot's insight there is very helpful. Because he connects the suppression of the truth about God with the desire to maintain a posture or a perspective where you remain at the center of your life. Where your desires and your plans rule and reign. In other words, what Lightfoot is suggesting is that the suppression of truth of the truth about God's reality and power is ultimately an issue of the heart. Now before we go any further, I want to expand on that just for a moment. It's a very important point and it's worth pausing to consider. Because I think sometimes we are made to feel or think that the issue about the truth and reality of God and whether people can accept it is a purely intellectual one. That is what people will even tell us in various ways. That they have uh, this or that doubt or objection, or that there's not enough information, or that they can't understand how, if God were real, He could allow this or that sort of thing to happen or be true. Now, to be sure, I am not at all suggesting that people don't have real questions. They do. They have real doubts, but what I am saying, and more importantly what Paul is saying, is that it is never, never the whole story. It's never, never just about intellectual doubts. It's only ever part of the story. The other part of what is going on has to do with the will and the heart In other words, people don't simply suppress the truth of God because they can't intellectually believe it, but also simultaneously because they will not morally believe it. They will not morally believe it. 
They're not willing to believe it. Why? Because at the end of the day, here's the thing that just eats at us and just kills us, I think, if we're honest with ourselves as fallen human beings. We cannot bear the thought that someone else gets to be God and not us. We cannot bear the thought that there is a throne out there and it is not ours and it never will be ours. You know, isn't that what's going on in the background back in the Garden of Eden such a long time ago? Isn't that what the conversation between the serpent and the woman was really circling around? I mean, isn't that what the serpent was doing? Suppressing the truth of God's kindness and generosity and planting the notion of God's restrictiveness, God's withholding of good things from His people, God's holding His creatures back from becoming all that they could become. Isn't that what Satan tempted Eve with, that, with being the judge of God? Isn't that why he wanted her to think she had the right to evaluate God's commands? And then to stand over them and somehow decide for herself whether it was a good thing or not? Isn't that why he tempted her to think that like God, she could be a rule maker. She could be the one that got to decide how things would be. In short, isn't that what he tempted her with? With suppressing the truth that there is a God and you are not him and replacing it with the notion that she could be her own God. Isn't that why many years later when God issues forth the moral law through Moses, the very first law right out of the blocks is you shall have no other God before me. Why is that the first commandment? Because it's the one we most want to violate. In fact, the one we most often do violate. We don't want God to be God because we want to be God. Can you see why the suppression of the truth about God, the truth that He is, that He's divinely powerful, can you see why the suppression of that might be the cause of such great wrath? From God? Can you see that it is the suppression of the truth about God and the replacement of Him with ourselves? That's the end of everything. That undoes everything. That turns everything on its head. Clearly, the suppression of the truth about God is a big deal, it's a huge problem. It's not just a huge problem. It's a pervasive problem. It's everybody's problem. That's the other point that Paul makes about it here. He says basically there's not a single person on this planet who has an excuse when it comes to this issue of God's reality, God's existence, God's power. Nobody has an acceptable excuse. Let that sink in. Right? No one can say, I didn't know. Nobody can get away with saying, look, I've weighed all the evidence and it just doesn't add up. Why? Because it's not true. I don't care who says it. I don't care how sincere they are. If by it doesn't add up, 
They are saying essentially that there's no clear evidence of God's existence and power and creation. Then guess what? It isn't true. How can I say that? Because that's the inescapable reality of what Paul is saying very clearly here. Paul is saying that God has left his mark on this universe, on creation, and it is a mark that cannot be missed. And Paul is so confident about this that he can say with great certainty that no one has an excuse. Now, I want you to hear what I'm saying with this, so let me start with what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that people don't say these kinds of things. I'm not saying that people don't assert that there isn't enough evidence about God out there or words to that effect. I'm not suggesting people don't say those things or that it doesn't add up for them. They do. The calculation, so to speak, really isn't adding up for them. But that's the problem. The problem is with the calculation. The problem is what, is what they are allowing and disallowing as admissible evidence at the outset. That's where the suppression of truth comes in. That's where the calculation gets thrown off. They aren't factoring in all the evidence. Things are being marginalized, left out, regarded as irrelevant from the beginning. I mean, if you're trying to figure out, uh, it's simplistic, but if you're trying to figure out your class average in chemistry and you have two test scores and one of them is 100A and the other one is an F, a test on which you were awarded no points, then if you factor everything in, you've got a 50. But if you say to yourself, well, the night before the F, I had a bad day and the car broke down, the dog ate my homework, I couldn't sleep, I'm not going to count that one. You remove that from the calculation, you come up with a different result. Your calculation is off from if you had factored that in. That's the effect of the suppression of the truth of God. People may say that things don't add up. They may say that the calculation for them doesn't result in the conclusion that there's God. They may say that with sincerity, but the reality is, and what Paul is saying is, that there are things that are there which they have seen, which they ought to be factoring in, but which they're not factoring in. And that is where the culpability comes in. They may be sincere, and they can be sincerely wrong at the same time. Now someone may say, well, hold on a minute. Doesn't the Bible teach that unregenerate people cannot understand spiritual things? That they're blind in that sense? And the answer is yes, they are things, there are things that unconverted, unregenerate people cannot see or understand apart from God's gracious working. They cannot understand, for example, God's provision for them in Jesus, God's redemptive plan and purpose apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. However, that doesn't get them off the hook. Because Paul's point here is that while there's not enough clearly accessible revelation about God and nature to save anyone, there is enough revelation to condemn them. To leave them without excuse for not acknowledging Him and seeking after this God who is clearly there, is clearly powerful and holy and divine. As one writer puts it, the truth being suppressed here is the general truth 
that is open to all people, not the truth that God has revealed in Christ and the gospel. People are guilty because they sin against the truth that they have, not the truth they do not have. I've gone entirely too long on that, and, um, and I apologize for the length of that, but I, uh, there's just so many things in here that I, I feel we ought to look at and think about but I don't want to walk away from this without pointing out at least two implications just from these couple little verses, two amongst uh, many possible ones. The first one is in the area of evangelism, um, or our, our witness to the truth about God. And it's simply this. The next time you're talking with that friend or that family member or that colleague at work or classmate or neighbor, that person that you know and care about, maybe you rub shoulders with them a lot, and that you feel fairly certain is not a believer, the next time you're talking with that person, remember this truth, this truth in particular. Remember that standing before you is someone who in some way, at some level, is suppressing the truth about God and who by virtue of that fact alone is a person without excuse before God. A person who on the day of judgment will not be able to say with any credibility I did not know you were there God. I did not know you were real. That is not, that's not going to wash. And the wrath of God that they already know now, and they're already experiencing every day, the fullness of that wrath is yet in front of them. And it's, it's coming at them like a freight train. If they do not repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, if they do not have the righteousness of God to shield them and deliver them, they will face the unmitigated wrath of God in their unrighteousness. Let that sink in. And please, let that thought be the thing that God uses to deliver you from your fears, your inhibitions. Let that be the thought be the thing that loosens your tongue, that gives you boldness, not brashness, but boldness to speak the truth in love because of love. The other implication is simply this. The suppression of the truth about God is not something that stops when you become a believer. It's something that you will wrestle with for the rest of your life. Even as a Christian, as Ferguson points out, it's often when we are hurting or in a bad place, or in the wake of some personal loss or tragedy, that we are most inclined to do this kind of thing. In the midst of some hard, hard circumstance, we begin to doubt God's goodness, or deny that He truly cares about us, or is even listening. We wonder if He's actually capable of delivering. There are all sorts of truths about God that we are inclined to suppress when we're struggling. Which is a call to two things. Firstly, a call to know your own heart 
better on that score, it's a call to remember these things precisely when you are in the middle of a hard time. It's a call to remember the deceitfulness of your own heart and have a certain kind of healthy degree of self-doubt when you start to doubt in the dark the things that you have never once doubted in the light. And with that, secondly, it is a call to serve your brothers and sisters better in this regard. As you walk with them and beside them through difficulties and trials, it may well be the case uh, that it falls to you to be the one to help a brother or sister when they're hurting to remember the things that they are inclined to suppress or doubt or struggling to recall. You may be the one when their, their field of vision is narrowed so much that all they can see is their trouble and sorrow and the God that they're currently seeing is really quite small. When that is the case, you may be the one that God uses to help them step back and remember the bigger picture to catch a renewed vision of this God who is vast and boundless, who is divinely powerful, and who has embedded that truth, he's plastered that truth indelibly and undeniably all over his creation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this, these words here in Romans 1. They basically tell us you spoke clearly. Um, you are speaking clearly. You haven't been confusing on this point of whether you are there, whether you are powerful. We thank you that you are that kind of God, a speaking God, a revealing God. And, um, and yet the other side of that is the implications when you are ignored or denied or suppressed or attempted to be suppressed. Father, help us to be um, grateful, thankful for the grace and mercy we've been shown. Help us to demonstrate that gratitude and thankfulness by feeling this a, a compassion, a strong compassion for those that are still standing in the way of that wrath that is coming as they continue to suppress the truth. Use us, Father, to be agents of truth, to speak truth. Please go before us, work in people's hearts and minds. Open their eyes to see and ears to hear. And then help us to be, continue to be agents of truth for one another when we are tempted to suppress truths about you ourselves and forget important things we should never forget, especially your great promises for your people. We thank you for saving us and for calling us into this mission. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.
We'll now uh, take up an offering for those who want to support the work of this church in that way.